Well, the reality is that whiteness is rooted in plunder, in theft, in um, enslavering, right? Enslavement of Africans, um, genocide of Native Americans. We're sitting on stolen land. If you're in America, we're in, we're sitting on stolen land everywhere in America. This is the reality of land that was stolen from Native Americans. We have to recognize that and acknowledge that. We are deserving, but Christ changed our mind frame. In a world full of errors, the only thing the doctor prescribes is truth. All right, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to Prescribing Truth. I'm Jamal Bandy. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Um, I am ready to get into this conversation, man. We got to talk. Um, there are three different things I want to talk about tonight, and we're going to start off by um, discussing the Sparrows Women's Conference, um, specifically Ikemene Yuan's rhetoric. Um, this was brought to my attention by a couple of sisters in, in the Lord, and um, and I looked at the interview myself, and um, I was amazed. Not in, not in a good way, very bad way. Um, also, very amazed at um, the comments by Tabidi um, and, and everything. It, it's, it's just been blowing me away. This has been blowing me away. Um, I don't want to take too long in um, dealing with this. You know, um, there's, there's a lot we got to get into. Now, I will say this, there's a lot that I would love to be able to say about um, <laughs> this interview and, and what took place and what was said, uh, but unfortunately, um, I don't have enough time to get into all of it. So I picked out the points that I thought that I could really um, speak on and, 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 uh, and give you something from it <laughs> as, as best as I could, and so I'm, I'm hoping um, that works out all right. Uh, that's something I forgot to pull up, but um, we're gonna we're gonna move through anyway. All right. So what I'm gonna do is we're gonna play a little bit of um, the interview. Um, there are three different points I want to play, and we're gonna discuss them. All right. And there, man, there's some interesting things that I just happened to find out in the midst of doing some research while um, playing this and and dealing with it. So I'm I'm just really interested in getting into it. All right. So y'all bear with me, pray for me, because this is one of them nights where I'm going to try my best not to, not to be long when it comes to the topics. There's a lot to say. There is a lot to say. Um, so let's just jump right into it. So we're going to play from the eight minute mark starting uh, with this interview. So I, I would love to have gone from the beginning, but like I said, there's a lot to cover here and we don't have as much time. And so I just want to be able to um, get to it, all right? So y'all bear with me with that. And I'm hoping this be helpful to somebody. I really do. All right, so let's just jump into it. For some people here, so can you explain what racial identity means when you think about white women or women of color and why it's important that we know about it? Yeah, well. Okay, so this is already a loaded question. This is the interviewer. Um, sitting to the right, and it emanates to the left, obviously, because you see that's the one that was asked the question. All right, um, but pay attention, pay attention to the to the question, racial identity, and what that is, um, <laughs> and her response. And so we're gonna we're gonna play um, a couple minutes of this. I'm gonna just let it play straight through for about two minutes, and then I'm gonna talk about um, things I've discovered in the midst of all this that's being said. Racial identity, um, just. I guess you want to, in, 
at a fundamental sense. It's just kind of the way that we traverse through um, and, and figure out our identity with our interaction with different um, groups. So as a black woman, as a majority, for example, uh, who interacts with maybe the majority culture, which will be white culture, um, we begin to get a sense of our racial identity um, based on the way that we are treated, but the way that we're, we're received, you know, um, in, in spaces maybe that are majority white, um, vice versa, uh, uh, the majority group traverses between different stages, if you will, of their um, racial identity development. So there's like, for example, there's the pre-encounter stage. I don't want to get too technical, um, but there's a pre-encounter stage where, um, say for as a black person, you have not come maybe into racial awareness. Um, so you have, have been, say you've been in a majority white spaces. And so in some ways you've imbibed this sense in which um, your culture is not as valuable, right? You know, as, or it's not seen as the norm. It's not, it's, it's not seen as the default, right? Um, and so you, um, in some ways, denigrate your own culture in order to assimilate, right? So that would be kind of like... Okay, so the first thing I want to bring out here, is there a problem with our culture not being the default? Is, there, is that really an issue? I, I've mentioned this in other podcasts before. If you go in any other country... In any other place, you go to Japan, China, anywhere else, and me as a black man, my culture will not be the default. It won't. I'm in someone else's land. I'm in someone else's area. Another whole, a whole other culture is here. And here I am being concerned that my culture isn't the default. So now, if I go into these lands and I wish to live there for a time and have to buy and sell and so on and so forth and make a living, I'm going to have to assimilate in the ways. Why? Because that is what you're going to have to do. You know, so they make assimilation as this, it's this evil term that's just, you know, meant to subjugate you and, and to erase your identity and all of that. But I can be an African-American man and go and live in Japan for how many ever years, learn the language and everything else, and I will still remember that I'm African-American. I will still know that. That's not taken away from me. Now, she's going to say some other things, too. It's going to go a little deeper other than deeper than African-American and all that kind of good stuff. She's going to mention that. But needless to say, you won't forget that. You know, you have to assimilate in order to survive in a ways. That's what everyone, not just blacks when it comes to America, everyone, everyone. You go to certain tribes. You always go to Africa and certain tribes that we're not familiar with. I would have to assimilate in order to survive in that culture because I don't want to offend them. I mean, that's, that's, just, a, that's just common sense at that point. But the, taking assimilation as being such an evil term as if, you know, this is something that we shouldn't have to do, A, B, and C, is bogus. It's bogus. And so, anyway, um, I just want to say that real quick. Like an example of, like, a pre-encounter stage. Um, and so that's, that's how we kind of end up coming into consciousness right and then something like Trayvon Martin you know um, getting what I would call lynched by uh, George Zimmerman snaps us out of that and we're like wait a minute hold up you know and then all of a sudden somebody has there's a marker there's a point in time where it's like oh my goodness like this person got killed because they are black simply because they're black so then now they're entering into an encounter phase you know so you have um so we move through different st stages based off of our interaction whether they're the majority culture as white people um which would be white people right and then white people um okay we'll stop her there all right so there's a couple things i want you to pay attention to real quick man there's a lot we got to get into um 
she talks about this encounter phase and all of that. This comes from the idea of racial identity development. Um, that's something I had looked up and tried to research and say, okay, what is she talking about? And this is what I saw. And so I'm, I'm going to pull this up real quick. I'm not going to put it up on the screen. I'm just going to read from it so you guys can uh, hear that. I don't want to say something here. Go to that. All right. So uh, <laughs> now this is what it's talking about. A crisis of adolescence search for self. You know, who who are you? Racial identity. Um, what I saw. Benefits of group membership. Feels identity needs. Feels needs for social comparison. And leads to increasingly extreme attitudes. That's the benefits of, you know, coming to this, this knowledge of self. Um, the cultural influences on identity. It says uh, socialization, vertical transmission, horizontal transmissions, oblique transmissions, all these things I'm looking at. What, what was interesting to me is when she gets to, let's see, the, the, this, this section on here, it's not from her. Um, this is from, I'll put the link in the description when I get a chance, but it's from labpsychologyillinois.edu. It says, it starts off with development of racial ethnic identity. Then it starts off with dominant minority approach. And these are the assumptions. These are the assumptions. That society assumed to consist of a dominant culture and one or more minority groups that are themselves as objects of collective oppression and discrimination. So that's the assumption. The other assumption, this racial ethnic identity is a developmental process in which individuals transverse or traverse from one stage to another as a result of experiences with, uh, with either the mainstream culture or with one or more of the minority groups. So this is talking about this um, encounter phase, the, these experiences. Four factors that influence strength of racial ethnic identity, size, power, discrimination, and appearance. All these are assumptions. And so these are the stages, the minority group identity stages. There's a pre-encounter stage. She mentions that earlier in the video. I didn't play that part. Characterized by Euro-American worldviews and a devaluation of black culture. So notice she talks about how people come to denigrate themselves. They, they, um, they assimilate and then denigrate their own identity. That's in the pre-encounter stage. The encounter stage is characterized by an emotional, personal experience, which fosters need to change. So once you have this encounter stage, now you feel like something has to change about you. You know, you've been, you've adapted to something, you need to change. And then it goes on, immersion, Im immersion, immersion. Black culture becomes idealized, leading a person to withdraw from mainstream culture, which is then denigrated. Then the internalization is person overcomes defensiveness and idealization and develops a secure black identity. And then, then finally, it's the commitment. Some people become committed to black affairs and improving the community. Now, this is for the majority group. This is their development stage, as what you call white people. Contact. So this is your thing. Contact. Passive lack of awareness of the implications of race. So this is your first, the first part that come to, you come to in contact with is that, man, I, I have a lack of awareness of the implications of race. That's a privilege or one's conformity to the racial status quo. Now, this is what she's accusing the people, the women at the Spirals Conference for doing. This lack of awareness of race, this privilege that they have, and there's one's conformity to the racial status quo. So notice that the status quo is based on race. So therefore, she's assuming that everyone in the audience 
is is assumed that they believe better, or the white women in the audience assume that they are better because of their race. She assumes that about them based on this, how this rhetoric is. Then this is what white people should deal with next. Um, disintegrate, disintegration. Increase awareness of racial inequalities, usually due to interactions with members of minority groups. That's why they want you to talk to them. They want you to talk to black people so you can see how better, how much you think you're better than them. Which, um, and they say, which feels threatening and increased anxiety. People cope by adopting uh, paternalistic attitude. Reintegration, idealization of whiteness and hostility towards minority groups. And then this is the pseudo-independent. Intellectual enlightenment about racism. So all of a sudden, now you're awakened. Ah, racism exists. Ah, I, I must be racist. <laughs> Focus on helping minority group meet majority group standards for acceptability. Okay, you see that? Focus on helping minority group meet majority group standards for acceptability. So that's what you'll put your focus towards if you're a white person. Immersion and immersion. An emotional search for a healthy identity which with focus shifting from others to self. Then in the other one is autonomy. Internalization of healthy, positive, white identity. Actively seeks to learn from others. So that's what you do, white people. You end up just keep learning from people. Keep learning from others. You know, just take away all that, that, that comes with you and you just learn from people. There's this. This takes away the two-sidedness of conversations that we need to be having. You know, this is what it does. Man, I am, <laughs> man, this is it's crazy, y'all. It's crazy. I hate it. I had I had gone through all that. The next thing I want to talk about real quick, and I want to say this briefly before we go into our taking our break. With Trayvon Martin, when you look at the case, and this is sad. It's sad what happened to Trayvon Martin. It's sad. It's sad that he was shot. It's sad that he was killed. But the situation, everything that the evidence show, points to shows that that um, George Zimmerman acted in self-defense. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, y'all. This is why we should not approach things of evidence by our emotions. We should approach things with the truth. That's what happens. The truth matters. Truth matters. And I know I'm going to lose just by saying that alone. I may lose a lot more subscribers. But, guys, this is what, this is what prescribed truth is about. This is we are we diagnose errors and we distribute the truth that the doctor prescribes. And when it comes to when it comes to a case like that, it was the, the evidence pointed that the man acted in self-defense. He wasn't racist. Now he didn't give evidence of racism. Put it like that. For years, for years, this guy was the head of his neighborhood watch committee, the head, and he was calling in a whole lot of suspicious activity. And yes. They were black. Yes, he was calling on black people who were looking suspicious. But this is what was interesting. Um, one of those guys who was that he did call in and said it was suspicious, end up stealing, end up burglarizing someone's home and taking their laptop and jewelry. And the police recovered it from the same individual that George happened to see, that he that he happened to see port, uh, peering through somebody's window. So there was a lot of burglaries going on in that community. And he knew about it, and he was—he could call him paranoid, whatever case may be. But he was calling everything that he saw because of all the burglaries that was happening in that area, and and that's what happened. And just it just happened. Trayvon Martin, man, 
in one night, one night he's walking. It wasn't broad daylight that he's walking, y'all. He's walking in the nighttime, walking back from the convenience store at night with a dark hoodie on. Now, is that his fault for doing that? No, no, I'm not saying that, y'all. But you got to put yourself in someone else's shoes, what somebody else is dealing with, what they're seeing, the perception. If I'm in a neighborhood that I know that happened, that a lot of burglaries take place and I see somebody I'm not familiar with in my neighborhood, I'm going to be suspicious. That's me as a black person in my neighborhood, regardless if I stayed in the hood or stay in the north side. Either way, I'm going to be suspicious of somebody I see that I'm not familiar with walking at night slowly in my neighborhood. I'm going to be suspicious. George, the mistake he made, the mistake that George Zimmerman made is that he got out his car and followed Trayvon. That was it. But his reasoning was that he didn't want to lose him. He seems that everybody that he calls in happens to get away from the police officers, and he didn't want him to get away. His only re his only thing he did wrong was that he left his car and followed them. They have an audio version of the call that you can listen to, and you hear the police officer tell him, "Sir, we don't need you following him. Stay in your car." You know, but George, oh, he got to go follow him. You know, and somehow when 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 Trayvon is close to his home, close to where he was staying, not his home, but close to where he was staying at the time, where I think his father's girlfriend's place, that's when he get in an altercation with George, and they get into a fight. They get into a fight, and from the look of George after the fight, Trayvon put the paws to him. He, he handed it to him. Now, Trayvon could have just went in the house. I mean, if, if the call was because he was, you know, being looking suspicious that he didn't stay in the neighborhood, he could have just went on in the house. You know, and then if the police would have came, then he could have pled his innocence. But some reason, he got into a fight with him. I don't know if George incited it or Trayvon incited it. I don't know. That either way, there was a fight that took place. George shot and fired. Now, given Florida law, he had a right to do it. He had a right to do it. That was Florida's law, that stand your ground law. If, he's, if you're being in an altercation, you're being in a fight, you feel like you're attacked, A, B, and C, you feel like you're acting in self-defense, you can use lethal force. That was their law. Man, I don't know if they're ever going to change that law or not. I have no idea. But that was the law, and that is why he was acquitted. That's why. It was a lack of evidence that he acted because of hate. It was because of self-defense. That, that's what the evidence pointed to, all right? So we're going to take time real quick. Just, uh, just to shift gears, I want to thank my patrons for supporting uh, this this podcast and everything, man. Y'all have been great. Uh, if you would like to become a part of Prescribed Truth today, you can do so by joining me on Patreon. For only a dollar a month, you will receive access to Patreon-only content, receive discounts um, on merchandise, take part in the Discord after-show hangouts, which is awesome, by the way, and more. Support me in my efforts to distribute the truth that the doctor prescribes. Those who sign on at the $5 tier will receive a Prescribed Truth mug as well as monthly gospel tracts from Gospel Planet. Thank you in advance for your support. Uh, you can learn more about Prescribed Truth at PrescribedTruth.com. All right. So uh, let's let's continue. Let's continue in this. Uh, I, I got a couple more clips to play, and we're, we're going to jump into it. A couple more clips to play, y'all. See, we're going to we, so we're going to start now at the 12:55 mark, around that way, and we're going to let it play for about another couple minutes. If I'm going to try to anyway, unless I want to interrupt. So when you're talking about healthy racial development for white women. The reality is that we have to understand that race is a social construct that was uh, organized around strife, around um, um, difference, racial stratification, you know, so that obviously white people are on top and then people of color, you're on the bottom, blackness being on the very bottom, you know, so there's levels to this. And so we have to understand that race in and of itself, you know, is made up 
and it's not something that we actually should really seek to redeem really. Our ethnicity though, is something that we do retra- retain and we see that in Revelation 7, 9. So can I keep talking? I feel like yes, I'm still, am, I ta- am I talking too much? I'm sorry. Okay, so, keep going. <laughs> so in Revelation 7, 9, we see that every tongue, tribe, and nation gathered around the throne, right? So we see that beautiful glimpse of what we're gonna see in the new heavens and the new earth, right? And that worship that's happening even now. Um, and so, so we retain that. So that is good. But race in and of itself was always meant, you know, to actually um, put differences, you know, between others. Um, and it was always meant to subjugate, right? Uh, in this case, obviously, I'm speaking as a black woman, so subjugate me <laughs> or subjugate us, you know, um, as black women. And with that, comes, so, so ethnicity, let me explain. All right, so let's let stop her there. All right, so now she rightly says, <laughs> she rightly says, uh, one, that she's talking too much. Yes, she rightly said that. No, Ferretto, she rightly said that race is a social construct. Now, the interesting thing about this is that we know race is a social construct. It's not based on biblical, uh, biblical concepts, but on an atheistic worldview and pride. All right, so... Now, why you said it, Jamal? Because the reason why this came about race, because originally she now she says it was given to subjugate and for hate and strife. That's not necessarily true. Matter of fact, I, I would I would argue to say that's not true at all. Um, now it became that because of pride and hey, we live in a what fallen world. But how this began because Europeans they wanted to make distinctions between themselves and others. This wasn't just because of blacks. They made, they've made distinctions between themselves and the Irish and the Polish and the Turkish and everyone else. They made distinctions between the Italians and so on and so forth. So it wasn't just black people that they wanted to make race. You know, they wanted to make distinctions with all people groups. That's what they did. Every, every person that wasn't like them, they wanted to classify. And so they gave classifications. Now, in the end of that, we have uh, three classifications that are given totally. You have those who are entered into Caucasoid, and that's because based on the skin color, nose shape, and everything else, you got Caucasoid, um, Mongoloid, and you have Negroid. All right, so those are the classifications. Those are the the, um, the groups, the, the three top uh, the top three groups. Um, and so the Irish, Polish, and everything else, everybody who's white, you say it's white, whatever, they would be in the Caucasian category. Um, all the Asians and, and um, Middle Easterns and all that stuff will be put into the Mongoloid, and you have your Negroid, which is your Africans, your dark skin, big nose, everything else. That's what they'll be put in the Negroid category. But the reason why these never worked, you know, even scientists today still can't agree on what fits where is because all the, you know, all the sex that happened in between that and, you know, people coming together. And that's the way God made it to be. He wanted it to be that way. Um, and this is what we know as Christians, that there's only one race, the human race. All right, all this other stuff is created by man. But what makes it interesting to me is that she knows this and yet is going to keep referring to them as, you know, whiteness. And, you know, that this is because of whiteness and our blackness and everything else. So she's, so she's standing on it while yet saying it doesn't exist. And I feel that's a contradiction. Now she's gonna and she's gonna mention some other contradictions later, talking about um, you know, it is put in power, like uh, whiteness is a power is a power structure and all that. We're gonna get into that. But it's something that's interesting. I want I got a quote from uh, Britannica.com and I wanna read this to you guys. It says, The peoples conquered and enslaved 
were physically different from Western and Northern Europeans. Now, when it says peoples, this is not just black people. Um, earlier in this, in this, early in the 17th century, uh, it wasn't just black people who were enslaved. There were also white people who were enslaved and beaten. It wasn't just, I mean, it wasn't like they were treating them good. It was feeding them um, cake and stuff. Like they was beating them too and treating them poorly. So it was whites treating whites poorly. That, that was what was going on back then. And so it says the peoples that were conquered and enslaved were physically different from Western and Northern Europeans, but such differences were not the sole cause for the construction of racial categories. The English had a long history of separating themselves from others and treating foreigners such as the Irish as aliens, others, or as alien others. By the 17th century, their policies and practices in Ireland had led to an image of the Irish as savages who were incapable of being civilized. Now, this is what they said about the Irish. <laughs> Proposals to conquer the Irish, take over their lands, and use them as forced labor failed largely because of Irish resistance. The Irish wasn't having it. They fought back. It was then that many Englishmen turned to the idea of colonizing the New World. So this is before they even came to America. Their attitudes toward the Irish set precedents for how they were to treat the New World Indians and later Africans. That was from Britannica.com. Now, I'm going to put a link about that in the description as well. You can catch that later, and so you'll see that. But it was something interesting that was on this website as well, and I don't have time to read it, read from it right now like I would like to, is that back then, before the late 17th century, black people who were made free, black people were being let go in seven years. It'd be just like the scriptures gave, you know, so far as how Israel should be, that they would serve, and then in seven years, they would be given, they would be given their freedom, and they was allowed to vote and everything else. They were, um, but it was until later on in the 17th century that people began to worry, and that's when you know people started to wanting to keep them enslaved indefinitely and all that kind of good stuff, you know. So that's what took place. But originally, when it when it was enslaved, they would actually let them go after seven years, uh, which is interesting. And also something that I saw in there as well that it, there were Africans who were set free who also in turn then owned slaves themselves. Now that blew me away. That blew me away. And it's, it's amazing what you can find out when you do a little research and you don't base it off of your biasness. You know, I mean, it's, it's, when you, it's amazing what you'll find out. And you'll see how all of this really is, is foolishness as far as it being today. You know, we can talk about history all day long, but what are we getting at for today? And so I thought that was very interesting. All right, so let's look at, um, let's see, I'm going to go play the third clip to set the 16-minute mark get through it. Well, the reality is that whiteness is rooted in plunder, in theft, in um, enslavering, right? Enslavement of Africans, um, genocide of Native Americans. We're sitting on stolen land. If you're in America, we're, in, we're sitting on stolen land everywhere in America. This is the reality of land that was stolen from Native Americans. We have to recognize that and acknowledge that. So with that is not so so it's a it's a power structure is what whiteness is and so the 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 thing for white women in this because women in here to do is to you have to divest from whiteness you have to divest from whiteness because what happened was that your ancestors actually made a deliberate choice to rid themselves of their ethnic identity and by doing so they actually stripped Africans in America of their ethnic identity, right? So I can. 
<laughs> so she's about to say that she can she can say where she comes from because she's her family's from Nigeria, but yeah, she remembers she knows where her tribe is, and she's gonna say, well, she can name that. And the the latest interviewing her really don't know the, where her roots come from because of whiteness. Now the interesting thing about this, racism is used of the term. I mean, racism in use of the term whiteness. I think this is racist that she would consider this whiteness. Look what she says: rooted in plunder and all this other stuff. What people group haven't plundered? I remember there was a king in Africa, in Northern Africa, a black king um, in Northern Africa. I can't remember his name. I wish I could remember his name. But he um, he was really wealthy. I mean, he I think he was he would go down as like one of the richest kings in history, and he had slaves. No, and they weren't um, Arab slaves. They weren't. Uh, European slaves, he owned African slaves from, from where he conquered other people's land and took slaves for himself. And he had a lot of them. He did. Now, the only reason why I heard about this king, I wish I could remember his name, is because I remember doing when this conscious movement began that uh, people were saying, oh, we need to get back to our roots. Our roots have, you know, there's royalty in our roots. And then somebody referred to this king. And I researched this king. I'm like, he, like, what you, royalty? Like, if anything, we, our family lineage goes to the slaves in which he enslaved. Not the royal, not the ones who was in royalty. I mean, he owned slaves, you know. And so, um, yeah, that that was crazy. It was, it was crazy. So we're. Is our white people, in the whiteness or white people, the only ones guilty of plunder? Uh, and then she says, we are sitting on stolen land. Where do she know that the, that the Native Americans actually had rights to the land from the foundation of the world? And I'm hearing this from a Christian worldview, all right? I'm thinking about this from a Christian worldview. God is sovereign over everything, and everything belongs to God. And if we believe that God is sovereign, unless she doesn't, unless she doesn't believe that God is sovereign, then no one has land that God himself didn't give to them. That means that when the Europeans came over here to the Americas, that God obviously allowed them to have this land because if he wanted it any other way, the Native Americans would have whooped their behinds and sent them back over the sea. That's reality. That's reality. All right. So the fact that that is the case, we got to think about that. We got to talk about that. All right. So they wasn't the only ones who plundered, you know. And so is this truly stolen land? Now, I wanted to pause right here and I wanted to go to scripture real quick. I wanted to appeal to scripture. And I want to show you guys something here. Because I want us to I want to appeal to us to be consistent. Y'all, I hope you may you may hear my um a little man crying in the background. I don't know what's going on. I hope Janae got it going. I hope Janae got him. Um, see, let's go here. I want not going the wrong screen. All right, so we look at the text here. This is Joshua. Just want to check something out real quick, guys. Just just check something out with me. All right. Now this is this is God commissioning Joshua. And if it'll take them into the land that God gave them, all right? God gave them. So it says, God tells Joshua, and we'll start at verse 5. 
no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so uh, I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And we love that verse, don't we? Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. All right, so let's go on, let's go on some more. So Joshua assumes command. All right, now they're going to they get ready to go. Now it says, uh, verse 11, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions. This is verse 11. Prepare your provisions. For within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Now, I'm going to ask you something here. I'm going to ask you something. What did the Canaanites do to Israel? Somebody answer that for me. What did the Canaanites do to Israel for Israel to come and take their land? Because this is, the, this is land that the Canaanites inhabited, right? This is land that God promised to Abraham. This is, this is, God, this is land that God promised Abraham, but this, this land has been inhabited by someone else. And what does God do? What does he do? He tells them he's going to go and take the land. Now, was there any warning to the Canaanites to say, hey, somebody's going to come and take your land? No. They're minding their business. All right? But this is land. This is what God is doing because it belongs to God. The land belongs to God. All right? He says, he's, what he goes on, he says, uh, your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them. Until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you, and they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered and said, all that you said we will do. All right. So this is what this is what took place. Y'all like, okay, so if if we're going to say that whiteness is the cause of plunder, and that's that's what that is. Then that, that's false. It's obviously false. We look at scripture, and we see that hey, wars happened, lands were conquered, and they took over. But who orchestrated? Who allowed it to happen? God, God did. So it's by this. This is why people saw it as God's providence that the Europeans in America and so on and so forth, God allowed these things to happen. I like, I like what Greg says. He says, the land vomited them out due to their wickedness and sin. And see, but look at that, though. But that comes from a Christian worldview. Because look at this. Why do we not deserve anything? We're sinful, rebellious human beings. We don't deserve a thing. Native Americans, who were they? Were they worshipers of God? Let's be real. No, they weren't. Does that, make, does that mean the Europeans were? Not all of them. No. You know what I'm saying? But they held, to a, they held to a Christian worldview, majority of them. So whether they did things perfectly or not. But those Native Americans, they worshipped the trees, the, the land, the water, everything else. They were idolaters. They didn't own the land. God did. All right? So that's the thing. So is America, is America truly stolen land? No, it's not. It's conquered land. You know, now think about this too. What gave the Europeans the upper hand? They had they came over with smallpox, which not their fault. They didn't they didn't say, hey, give God, I want smallpox. Give me smallpox disease so I can take over lands. No. 
They happened to have it. Hmm, I wonder how that would have happened. Then what else? They had guns. Now, you're telling me only the Europeans out of everybody in the world knew how to make guns? They had the mind to make guns? Native Americans didn't. The Africans didn't. This is why the slave, this is one of the things, the benefits of the slave trade, if people know, it wasn't like the Europeans went into Africa just, just kidnapping everybody. No, they were being sold. They were buying slaves from other enslaved Africans from other Africans. That's what they were doing, buying slaves, buying and trading, trading weapons for slaves, trading gold for slaves, so on and so forth. That's what they were doing, all right? So now if we're going to say whiteness is rooted in plunder, well, then we have to say blackness is rooted in plunder. The reason why I say this is racist rhetoric is because if somebody says that you have to divest from blackness, then there will be an uproar. Let a white person tell you that you have to divest from blackness. You will lose your mind. And if they say blackness is rooted in theft, is rooted in plunder, is rooted in strife, because guess what? Black people did do it too. Africans did it too. Every people group has been touched by sin. So guess what? If we say it about whiteness, we have to say it about blackness, Asianness, Mexicanish, Hispanicish, I guess, you know, we have, we'll have to say that. If we be consistent, we're going to have to say that. So that, that, <laughs> I know, I know some of y'all going to listen to this. And we're like, man, Jamal's talking crazy junk, whatever the case may be. That's fine. It's, it's people like that, and this is my opinion, who don't want to deal with the actual facts of the information that's actually going on and want to appeal to their emotions. Just to their emotions. Don't want to deal with the actual information. And for that, I have nothing. I, I can't do nothing about that, you know. I can only give you the truth. The truth. All right? Oh, well, the danger is that we'll... we'll continue to perpetuate you know um the the oppression the racism you know that's okay so the question that was asked is you know what is the danger of ignoring the conversation not having the conversation the people in the audience not paying attention to what she's saying basically what is the danger of it and she's saying that the danger is you're going to come you're going to continue to perpetuate oppression and racism all right so that's what she's saying happening uh and we have to not only just come to these conferences but then apply what what you're learning and hearing you know if what i'm saying is making you uncomfortable you got to ask yourself why you know um it's uh I, and that's killed me so this now is if, if we if they're uncomfortable what you're saying it ain't that so it can't be that you're actually saying something that's wrong it has to be that i gotta look inside myself and do some soul searching as to why i really don't like what she's saying like no because you're saying something that's wrong un unbiblical not biblical and, and you're, you're coming from places as if seeming like you're being loving when you're really not. Really not. You're assuming on people's hearts. You're assuming on people's motives. And you're drawing from the past in order to push a narrative for the present that isn't true. Oppression? I mean, look at this woman. I mean, like, look at her. She, does she look oppressed to you? Does she look like anybody's oppressing her? Really? Who in the audience is oppressing the other black women that are in the audience? Who? Because to perpetuate something means that you are you continuing it. You're continuing to do it. You know, and this is what she's saying. If you ignore the conversation, don't have it, then you're perpetuating oppression. That means you're actually for oppression and you're for racism if you don't agree with what she's saying. If you don't take into account what she's saying. If you don't uh, respond in a way that she feels that you should respond, then you yourself are oppressive and you yourself are racist. That's assuming a lot on someone's heart, man, for somebody who knows they're not God. I mean, I'm just saying, just saying. All right, let's, let's go. 
because race is an idol. It really is. Whiteness is an idol. There are benefits conferred to that. But our idols mean to kill us, which means that whiteness will kill white people too. We have got to disabuse ourselves of our idols. Every and anywhere we find them, we must be determined to kill them. So whiteness is an idol, but she won't say blackness is an idol. Whiteness is an idol. And notice she only associates whiteness with all the sin. Instead of calling it what it is, like what scripture says, sin, she says it's whiteness. And this is and this is the thing, bro. This is the thing. I say, bro, I'm talking to you all. I guess y'all are my brothers and sisters. I'm hoping so. This is the thing, guys. If she says it's sin, if she if she calls it what the scripture calls it, when it comes to plunder, the theft, and the ravaging, and all that kind of stuff, if she calls it what scripture calls it, then guess what? That takes it away from the response. That takes away from the responsibility of everybody in the crowd. That means everything she's saying right now doesn't matter to anybody that's in the crowd at the moment. But because she wants to perpetuate this guilt for them, she's going to say whiteness. But if she calls it sin, guess what? Sin is an individual thing. And what God says, that the sins of our fathers would not be brought on the sins of the children. Everybody will be held accountable for their own sin, not the sins of their fathers. So if she was to call it sin instead of whiteness, she would just be biblical about it then she would see or know that, hey, I can't hold these people accountable in the audience for what people did in the past because they're dead and gone. You know, these people here, they're not being racist. And if they are being racist, then you deal with it. It's a hard issue, you know, but she's showing her racism in how she's behaving. Only white people has the problem. And the black people in the audience, they ain't got no sin issue. They ain't got no heart issue. They're the, they're the victims. They're the, they're the helpless, hopeless victims who just wish they can just get by in life. You know, but the white people in the audience, they're the privileged ones. They're the ones who got it made. You know, man, okay. If y'all don't see that's racist, something's wrong, man. Something's wrong if y'all don't see that's racist, man. Let somebody say that about blackness. Let somebody say blackness is wicked. Let somebody say that blackness, that you got you to disimpose, you disembow yourself of blackness because it's wicked. Let somebody say that. All right, see how many news channels bring that up. That's crazy. And But since she says race, she says earlier how race can't be redeemed because it's a social construct and it's made up, so therefore it doesn't really exist. But whiteness exists. And then she said you don't want to use it because you don't want to use race because it's unbiblical, but whiteness is biblical. I mean, what she says whiteness is, is simply sin. What God calls sin. Anyway, I go another tangent. Uh, I can go another 30 minutes being on a, on a rampage about that. Let me continue. You know, and kill them on God's altar, right? Lay them down. This is why we can come to the cross. We can leave it there, you know, um, and it can be covered by the blood. We got to, we got to lay it down um, because there's real implications for people. You know, this is not a game. Uh, we have, well, you guys are in Texas right now. We have, there are image bearers, Latinx image bearers locked up in detention camps, someone say concentration camps, dying, languishing, being sexually abused right now because people chose whiteness, right? They chose white. They chose a man to be elected in office who is all about whiteness at any cost, you know, no matter what, doesn't care, just 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 made crass jokes about people seeking refuge, 
seeking asylum here, seeking life here, only to come to their own demise and their own death and their own ruin. So there's real political consequences in here. Um, and so the, you, you have to divest from whiteness, you have to divest from patriarchy, white women specifically, because over 50% of you all voted for Trump. And you gotta ask yourself why, why? When this man said that he grabs women's vaginas, white women's vaginas specifically, why, why, why? You have to ask yourself that. You have to do some real soul searching. Though the stakes are very high for you and for other and people of color, people live behind your decision. And we have another election coming up in 2020. You have a chance to do right, to, do, to vote differently, to do something differently. You have a chance. I'm just trying to give you options here. There's options, okay? We have options. Um, so, the, so the benefit, obviously, if you're here, you care about this stuff, right? You might be mad at me now. That's okay. You know, the Holy Spirit will, I trust the Holy Spirit will get you together in Jesus' name. Um, All right. <laughs> yeah, that's enough of that. All right. Oh, man. So there's guilt for white people for voting for Trump. Now, I guess it would have been better. I guess Hillary wouldn't have you know, perpetuated whiteness. So it would have been better to elect Hillary in office. And therefore, a lot of black babies would have been murdered, continually murdered, thousands, millions of babies murdered. Um, and that wouldn't have mattered because, hey, you know, as long as Trump's not in office. All right, so, so guilt for women who don't agree with her rhetoric and voting for President Trump. That is what white people are guilty of, white women in the Sparrow Conference are guilty of because they voted for Trump. And I guess she happens to know that every white person, or she says 50%, she happens to know that everybody in the audience, that white women there, 50% of them voted for Trump. She, she happens to know that. That's her numbers. All right. And she may be right. They may have. But I'm pretty sure there's some black people there who voted for him too. But black people ain't the fault. It's white people. White people are at fault. There are black people who voted for Trump too, believe it or not. Yeah. There are some blacks who, who said no to Democrat. <laughs> and um, because people's values look different. You know, it's like, okay, the, the immigration law that Trump going for, wanting to build a wall, wanting to protect the borders. That's what he says, all right? So before this whole thing came about, before Trump was trying to build a wall, what was going on at the borders? Women were still being raped. Um, women were being taken advantage of. Uh, people were being beaten, uh, and people coming over here illegally still. I mean, just people trying to do it the right way. You know, still being treated wrong, everything else. Um, so that was going on. And then you have people who come in illegally, you know. And you say, well, that shouldn't matter. People should just be able to come freely as they want to. Okay, you say that when, when like um, Jason said earlier, well, somebody come conquer your land. But guess what? If you let your borders be free and open, guess what? That leaves it open for anybody to come and conquer your land. I mean, that's just, that's just what it does. You know, if you don't, if you know, if you don't have a control, a way of of doing things, that that's what it leaves it open to. Anybody can just come in, and you don't know if they have good motives or not. And and let's be real, not everybody who's coming over, who's trying to seek asylum, was actually in danger of anything. You know, they were just wanting to go to school. They just wanted to get a job. You know, this and that third. But yet, they didn't want to go through the legal process. They wanted to sneak over. You know, and and come on, honestly, as a Christian, is that right? If you know what the law is, the laws of the land are, and, and we, it, to go against it, would that be right? Now, once again, I mean, there's a law that could go against what God says, but is there um, a law 
that God put that said it's wrong for somebody to set laws for their area, the border. I mean, even Israel had a law. I mean, hey, if a sojourner comes in your land, you know, saying this is what they're going to have to do if they want to stay. You know, he, God didn't allow sojourners to come in Israel's land and worship their gods and worship their idols. They didn't do they didn't allow that. You know, there were still there were rules. You know, they, they didn't want it to stay. You know, so, I mean, we see that in Scripture. Like, that is not the biggest deal. But the murdering of children isn't. So whiteness, he's, he's perpetuating whiteness. So Trump is perpetuating that we go plunder. And I want to know where. If, if, if the power structure, the, the plundering, and, and it's rooted in plunder, it's rooted in thief, and, and, um, and theft and everything else, where did he advocate that then? If he's, if he's all about whiteness to no end. Like, where did he do that? Where's the evidence of it? Yeah, do I agree with his rhetoric half the time? No. I mean, do I think he's a little more laid back? Doesn't take it really as serious as he could be? Yeah, I, you know, I agree with some of that stuff. But, I mean, hey, <laughs> given the, the information, he's actually doing pretty good as a president. I know, I know. Oh, man, don't, 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 don't hate me all at once. He's actually not doing that bad. You know, and he's giving the media what they want. They want to make a scene. He's making a scene back at them. He's just playing the game, and y'all playing it with them. That's what y'all doing. So um, I had I did want to go over some of the stuff in the transcript that she brought up, some theological errors she brought up. Uh, she mentioned that Jesus went to hell. That's heresy. She said Jesus went to hell. That's heresy. Um, the whole issue with Jesus on the cross, you know, uh, the God separated from Jesus. That's why Jesus said, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? That's false. That's a, a song. That's, that Jesus was quoting from a, a Masoretic song. Um, I, I said Masoretic. Anyway, um, a song of David, a psalm of David. He was referring to a psalm um, saying, Eli, Eli, Shabbat to me. That was the title of the psalm. It was prophetic and talking about his crucifixion. That's what he was doing. God did not separate from Jesus. If God separated from Jesus, then the Godhead would fall apart. God would no longer be God. That's heresy. All right. But she made that may be a, a ignorance part on her end concerning the Godhead part is Jesus uh, separate, or God separating from Jesus. But the whole thing about Jesus descending into hell, that's heresy. That's that's heresy. He didn't go to hell. All right. Uh, so I just want to correct. I want to correct those things. Read from the transcript, but I don't have the time for it. So I'm not going to do that. All right. I'm hoping this was helpful to somebody dealing with this subject. I hope it was. I really do. All right, so we're going, to shift, we're going to shift gears once again real quick. So as a Christian, one of the main things we should be doing is evangelizing. Our Lord said to go, therefore, and make disciples. And sometimes we can't wait for them to come to us. One way in which I like to engage others is with gospel tracts. They, they are great for starting a conversation, and sometimes you may not have the time, but no need to fear because every gospel tract has the gospel message laid out beautifully. So you can be assured that if they take the time to read them, they would have received the gospel message. Where do I get my gospel tracts from? I'm glad you asked. I get mine from Track Planet. They offer a wide variety of gospel tracks, even for different seasons of the year, at an extremely affordable price. I've used them at work just by sitting them on my, uh, on my counter, watching people pick them up and begin to ask me questions about the message they contain. They don't take long to ship, and they even put a piece of Starburst in the package just to say thank you. Now, that's what I'm talking about. If you would like to check out some, awesome, some of these amazing uh, tracks um, to use in evangelizing, please visit the website that I've linked below. The website is prescribedtruth.com forward slash track planet. All right. Now, for our next segment, this is going to be quick. <laughs> yeah, sure it is. It's going to be quick.
Uh, Jonathan Edwards. Now, this is continuing from this whole series dealing with why not Martin Luther King and why George Whitfield, because he owned slaves. Why Jonathan Edwards, because he owned slaves. And because they own slaves, they automatically, automatically are racist. That is, that, that is the end. That is it. All right. Now, is that true? And I asked this question um, three weeks ago, and, for, and I've been asking this for a few weeks now. Is it a sin in and of itself to own slaves? Now, I remember somebody gave an argument saying about, you know, well, you go kidnap and maybe and see. Well, we're talking about owning slaves. Now, now, we know the Bible is clear. If you kidnap someone, then that's sin. You should be put to death. Men stealing is wrong, right? But that's not the case when it came to all the slaves in the slave trade. Majority of the slaves who were traded in the Atlantic slave trade were bought and sold. Sold from other Africans. That's, that's true, all right? And then sold from other whites and, all, and so on and so forth, the French and everyone else. All right, so that was, that's true. All right, so we have to deal with that. So now, dealing with Jonathan Edwards, there's not much on him in this subject. There's not much on him with the subject, y'all. So this won't, even, this won't even be long at all. All right, so we know he owned slaves, but we know Jonathan Edwards was against slavery. I mean, no, he was against um, the slave trade. He was against the abuses of the slave trade, how they treated people um, in the midst of it. Um, and so just like Whitfield, he was against the treatment of slaves, Yet he still saw benefit in owning slaves himself. Didn't see, a, didn't have a conviction of owning slaves himself. Now his treatment of his treatment of slaves was good, much like Whitfield treated the slaves good. Now you may say, well, Jamal, this doesn't matter. He still owned them. I feel you. I do. I feel you. But the issue that's at hand is: were they racist? Were they racist? Were they hateful of black people, not loving their neighbor, and so on and so forth? Is this the case? Then, if we go biblically, it's not the case. It's not the case, um, and that and that's no, that's just the end of that. Really, really. Um, let's see. He said, Ed, he said Edwards defended the traditional de definition of slaves as those who were debtors, um, children of slaves, and war captives. So he basically based his ownership of slaves based off the scripture. You know, this is what was given to Israel as far as what they should do if they have slaves. Or these are those who would qualify as slaves to Israel. Um, so uh, debtors, those who owe debt, children of slaves. So he didn't go, uh, Edwards didn't go and buy adult slaves. Matter of fact, um, he only had his slaves that he had were children. You know, they were. And war captives. You know, so people that were defeated and they was taken in slavery. So that would also include the Africans who were slaves themselves already by other Africans. So because when they were, they were enslaved because of being defeated in war, and they were sold to whites. So that would be included as well. So he, he took a biblical stance in that way he saw from the Old Testament. So um, that's, much, that's, that's really it with him. I mean, he, doesn't, he didn't write much on it. He didn't, preach on, he didn't preach much on it. And that's why I'm glad I didn't have to take 30 minutes to discuss Jonathan Edwards. Um, it's not much about him on this subject. Um, now, his son, interestingly enough, would grow up to be an abolitionist. And he would say that his father's owning of slave was an, of active ignorance. That's what he would say concerning his own father. Um, but, that, but that's it. But that's it. So, um, yeah. That's, it. that's all I can say. That's all, that's all I can get with Jonathan Edwards. So now, um, real quick, I want to play this. Uh, I want to go into this, this other segment real quick. And this was from the Red Couch podcast. And this was dealing with um, Propaganda and Jay Givens. I don't know if anybody who's watching this may follow them. 
uh, follow the music and anything, anything like that. I know I've been a big fan of propaganda for years. Um, Jay Givens, I know he recently came out as being homosexual and everything, but before that, I was listening to his music a lot. I, you know, I really enjoyed his music. Dude got talent, major talent. Um, but they just had a, they just did a podcast where they were discussing um, masculinity and femininity. And um, talking about, I guess, giving room to talk about uh, how Jay Gibbons came to be um, homosexual or when he realized he was and so on and so forth. And so they had a conversation. And Propaganda and Jay Gibbons, they were good friends. They were close. Um, well, they didn't say were. They are close and everything. It's just that this podcast bothered me so serious. Um, it bothered me because this, the whole conversation, it's an hour long, uh, about a little over an hour long. The whole conversation centered around things in society, like how the world views things, how the world views masculinity, how the world views femininity, how the world views um, patriarchy and everything else. And if you listen to uh, when, I, when I did it uh, over uh, Kimine and when she said she snuck in patriarchy, like we have to disavow ourselves from patriarchy, like that's so wrong. But God is the one who placed patriarchy in place. He's the one who established it. So it's, it's, it's funny um, that we're having this conversation now and that propaganda is you know he claims to be Christian, he professes to be Christian, you know. But I am concerned. I am legitimately concerned uh, with what's from what I'm hearing from him, and in this podcast. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna um, it, I'm gonna say what concerned me so far. So there was uh, apart from the cussing and stuff like that, that was happening from both people. Um, Prop saying that he doesn't know um, what masculinity is, what it means to be masculine. I mean, this this is a guy who was a Christian who did the gospel video in four minutes. I mean, you know, so like, how did he not know where we get masculinity from? And um, you know, the cultural stereotypes that shape them, that shape their thoughts concerning masculinity and so on and so forth, which I can relate to in some sense. And um, they talked about uh, the oppression; they call it oppression from their high school peers concerning the stereotypes of what it is to be a man and you know, and be a girl or be a woman or whatever case may be. And um, it was just interesting, just interesting, not using the Bible at all, you know, not referring to the scriptures at all. There were sometimes that Jay Given would quote a scripture, but he would take it out of his context and how he was using it, you know, as far as what their conversation was. And, it, you know, it was just interesting. So I wish I could go over this whole podcast with you guys. And maybe if enough people give uh, feedback, I will respond to the whole thing and go and go piece by piece. But um, I'm only going to play this last section of it, and then I'm going to respond to it at the end. And then we'll be through with the show, guys. So, um, so yeah. So just, just, just listen to this, man. Just, just listen to this. Doting over me like the movies say about Daddy's little girl. Oh, the movies. You understand oh what I'm saying? God. I'm oh. about to get to the movies. The why movies. is my, why do my children not hang on my every word like the 500 plus people that buy tickets to come see me? Right? What does huh. that say about who I am? Huh. Why does my wife challenge every effing thing I say to her? Right? No one else challenges me. Huh. Why does she, why does, why does the one person I care about the most, right, who I'm the most vulnerable to, uh-huh. never really believe what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, it's just, it dudes, that's a mind bender. Asking all the questions. Why, like, like oh I my tell, gosh, I could tell them to do it, they go do it, no question. Why you I asking all 5,000 people? You, <laughs> I told them to put their hands up and they did and it. They did. They did it, no question. Why, why are you asking questions? <laughs> yes. Why are you asking me why? Yes. Um, and then even a bigger thing why am i defining myself by these terms these like sweeping there's like okay so here's here's so check him out check him out what he's what he's saying here guys just really pay attention why is he defining himself by these sweeping 
I'm going to say stereotypes, but he's going to say something else. So just just check out what he's saying. Pay attention. The way I think about it, like when – if somebody asks you like what's your favorite food and someone would say Chinese food, Mexican food, you know, Filipino food, amen. Or what if what if a person would rather than saying like that, they say, well, my favorite food are food that you eat over rice. Hmm. So that's jambalaya, that's gumbo, that's – General Saul's chicken. That's like that spans so many different yeah, countries. Yeah, yeah. I've just organized my plate different. Like so, I'm not thinking of it in terms of these terms. I've organized my okay. the way I, the, my taste bud is organized different than yours. So when I say to myself, "Why?" Let's let's just take orientation. Like why? Why is that a part of my identity? Why is that an identifying point? What arouses me? Like, why have I organized my identity like right, that? Right, right, right. Why couldn't it be something that Alma brought up once was like, what if we thought about our sexuality in terms of the person we're attracted to rather than the arc, the type of persons? Right, like, cause right. If so, if we, so real quick, so what he's saying, oh, man, why am I organizing my identity based off of what arouses me, you know? Uh, scripture tells us what it is. It's lust. Lust. You know, um, homosexuality is, is not defined because, you know, you happen to think in your mind, hey, this is what's happening with me. God is one who said this is what it is when a man is with a man and with a woman with a woman. You know, and this is why it's, this is wrong. You know, it's sin. You know, it's an abomination and all those things. God says those things. You know, we don't come up with that. Men didn't come up with that. God did. All right. For his reason. Now, it's interesting that he said that this next reason he's about to give, or what he gave, that his wife brought up, Alma. She's the one who co-hosts with him on the show. She gave him the idea. What if, and this is the thing. He says, what if, um, you know, it's not about, you know, it's not about that, I, you know, the people I, I like, where it can be, but there's just a, the, the type of person, you know, versus the fact that they're, you know, the, the gender has anything to do with it. It's just who they are. And that's what arouses me. Like, what if it's that? And as if that's some kind of, as if that's some kind of scapegoat, as if that's like, oh, man, it's okay then. You know, like, if we looked at it like that, oh, no wrong, no harm, no foul. Like, no. It would still be sin. In the case of, you know, talking about lust and talking about same-sex attraction and, and same-sex lust and so on and so forth, it would still be sin and need to be repented of. It, it don't matter if it was a bunch of men or just one man. If you're a man who lusts after another man, that's sin. Just but see, it's sin for a man to lust after lust to have sex with a woman. It's sin then. But guess what? It's a natural affection for a man to want to be with a woman. That's a natural affection, a God-given affection. All right, to lust after her, something that doesn't belong to you, is sin, because that's coveting. She doesn't belong to you. Now, when she's your wife. Then she belongs to you, and you're welcome to lust at her all you want to, because that's your wife. You love, you're, you're willing, you're able to desire her, and I pray that you do desire your wives, you know. But when it comes to somebody who's not your wife, that's what the case. But it is a unnatural affection for a man to desire another man. That's 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 Romans one. That's Romans one all day long. It's an unnatural affection for a woman to desire another woman. That's unnatural. So therefore, in turn. God is not going to bless that union as being, hey, this is this is marriage or anything like that, or the sex or any of that kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's evil in God's sight, evil. 
all right? We have to call it what it is. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't matter if it was just that you just attracted to this guy versus a bunch of guys. And that's what he's going to say. You know, and, and it wouldn't matter. But for propaganda to be saying this and to say that he got this idea from his wife makes me wonder what goes on. Makes me wonder what's going on. Who's, who's, who's influencing him? Is his wife really influencing him that deep? She's a professor. And I found out today you know, she's, a, she's, a, she's heavy on feminism. And propaganda, he's is too. And I didn't know that. I didn't know that until today. That he's heavy, he's heavy on feminine, on heavy on feminism, um, and his wife is heavy, heavy on feminism. So that 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 that's interesting to me, you know. But um, anyway, I'm, I'm gonna continue to play some more, and I wanted to play the rest of this, not the rest of the podcast, but the rest of this uh, section. And that goes into type. Yes, within. I'm not attracted to women like all of them. Right. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Right, right. I'm not attracted to all of them. I. I'm attracted to a lot of them, but I really love one of them. Huh. You understand what I'm saying? So, like, what if someone gave, what if we gave, and I don't know, I'm shooting at the hip here. What if we, you know, what if what if as a little boy, if you was like, I, look, I don't know if I like boys or girls, but I really like Thomas right now. And so are you telling me that means if I just like so I'm gay because I like, right, or, or what right, if I just right. like him? Yes. Yes. Because you'll still be considered a homosexual. Yes. Same sex. Homo sex. Same sex. Hetero sex is different sex. Different gender that you are attracted to. Homo sex is same sex. Even if, what you going to say? You're bi? Bisexual? You like men and women, okay? Still, homosexual is still in there. You can't escape it. The natural affection is for the woman, not to have sex with her unless she's your wife. But you know that's natural to to lust after the woman, to want to, to desire to be with a woman, but not to be with the guy. So either way, homosexual is still in there. Whether it's one guy, ten guys, fifty guys, it doesn't matter. Yes, you would still be considered gay. You know, and that's what that would be. You know, a homosexual. You know, yes, that that would be true. You know, and so yeah, and so now, can, is that repentance of that? Can there can you repent from that? Turn from that? Look to Christ and He free you from that? Yes, I believe it's possible. I believe God would do it. I do. You know, in His time, but He will do it. But the thing is, what people are getting into now is that they're trying to be comfortable in where they are. You know what I'm saying? Like they, like this whole thing about being a gay Christian. Like you don't see that with no other sin. You don't see nobody saying, "Hey." <laughs> I'm an adulterous Christian. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yes, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. I'm an adulterous Christian. Um, I just want you to make. I just want you to let me feel comfortable. I want you to feel comfortable in do, in doing this, and uh, letting me be an adulterous Christian. Uh, you know what? I go one further. You know what? I really like animals. If I be real with you, I like animals. I, I I'm a Christian. Who just happens to desire animals sexually, bestiality? Oh, let me, let that go over in the pulpit. <laughs> no, that will not work. That won't work. <laughs> like uh, Vody Bacham says, that dog won't hunt. <laughs> but that's what they're trying to push. This is the agenda that they're trying to push. You know, and so now this whole idea of feminism and all that kind of stuff like that. So who has the right to define masculinity? 
you know, because earlier in this in this podcast, they talked about how, you know, people are trying to tell them what meant, what it is to be a man, but you know, and, and they don't really like that. That's misogynist and all that kind of stuff like that. And so they're the ones defining it and, and propaganda as a Christian saying he doesn't know what masculinity is. You know, and so that kind of leads into pe- to men being effeminate. You know, they were talking about their, their in their childhood how, um, you know, uh, Jay Givens he he liked to write and he liked to write in cursive. He liked to write loops and stuff like that. He liked to be very artistic with his writing, and people used to call him gay for that. And so he was like, "Man, let me change my writing style because I don't want to be called gay." That's peer pressure. That's peer pressure. And one, that's not oppression. You know, uh, Alma called that oppression. That's not oppression. That's that's kids being kids. That's that's peer pressure. You know, and that's and that comes from him not him hopefully maybe not having nobody in his life to really tell him, hey, and that's that's good that you like being artistic. Use that versus saying that's gay. You know, I mean that's just what he was brought up in in that area in that, in that time. It, it, it was like that with me in school. It was like if kids if if guys seen you doing something that they normally see girls do, they would say you're being a girl or they say you're you're um you're gay. They would do that and they would tease you for that. Now it doesn't make it right. No, it was wrong, but that's what kids did. That's what kids do. But look, what, why is that, though? Why do people do that? Why do people treat people wrong? Why do people say mean things to people? Because they're sinners. Kids are sinners. They're little, they're little bitty sinners, terrifying devils. That's what they are. They, they need Christ. You know, and propaganda and Jay Givens, when they're young, they don't know this information then. They just know people are being mean to them. But that's the reason. We're, our hearts are full of sin, you know. And so, no, so who, who gets to define masculinity? Does the culture define masculinity? No. Does, does uh, our own experiences and our own intuition define masculinity? No. Who defines masculinity? God. God does. It's a no-brainer. God, the one who created heavens and the earth, the one who created men and women, he has the right to define masculinity and femininity he has the right and guess what he did he defined it he gave examples of it through his word men this is what you are to do women this is what you are to do this is what this is the role of you both this is it he gave it and you call it patriarchy huh well god did it he did it he's the one who sets the standards Regardless of cultural stereotypes, God sets the standard. Now, are there women who have ma- who are, who are a little masculine in ways, and are there men who are a little feminine in ways? Yes, yes, but that does not make the exception the rule. All right. And now, propaganda mentions how his wife challenges everything he says. Is that because you know he needs to be feminist? He needs to be a feminist, and it's it's her trying to show that she can be strong woman. No, that's a result of the fall. Women are not submissive to men because of the fall. And men abuse their authority because of the fall, you know. But that doesn't mean that men, male headship is wrong, and that women submitting to to male headship is wrong. It doesn't mean that, you know. It just means that we're sinners, you know. So we won't get this right. We will fail because we're sinners. But God sets the standard, and Jesus was the perfect example of masculinity. He was the perfect example. Of what it is to be a man. And guess what guys? Jesus wept. Mm-hmm. That's one verse by itself. Jesus cried. And he cried when he prayed. So the cultural stereotype that men don't cry. Is bull crap. And Jesus cried. 
He wept. He did. He was compassionate. He was. He was loving and caring and all those things. But guess what? When it came time to handle business, our Lord stepped up and handled business. He was a man. He was fully man. And he was fully God. Now, for anyone who, comes, who claims to be a Christian, to forget about that, to act like that didn't happen, act like, that, act like they don't even know that happens, I am concerned. I'm concerned with my brother propaganda here. I'm not trying to be funny, guys. I'm concerned with this. This is worrying. You know what I'm saying? Like, he has a following. He has a following. People listen to him. People listen to this podcast. Listen to him and his wife. Spread this 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 venom, this feminist venom that wants that seeks to take down men, <laughs> to bring them down, and they say no, we're not trying to bring down men. Yes, they are, you know. So this and propaganda says earlier in the podcast, like you 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 got you got to defend you got to define how women are. Why can't women define how you should be? No, men didn't get to define how women are. God defined it, and men following what God said they should be, the head. The head of the home, the head in government, because guess what? Israel was a theocracy, and who was leading in that theocracy? Men. That's what God said. God set the plan, not us. We didn't do it. So, <laughs> I think I answered one of them already. Um, so she said, now, I, I almost says later on in here, I'm not going to play it all, but she, she comes in and she's narrating this conversation. And she says at one point that she's, the, she's a very type A person. I mean, she's alpha. Like she's a she's she's very masculine in the way. She you know she's like an alpha, and she admits that propaganda sometimes may take her um, coming to him and her approach as being bullying. Like she you know as, as bullying him some, and she says it in love. So and that she's trying to be intentional. That's just how she is. But she says it like it's a good thing. Like this is a good thing that I that I want to be above my husband. But that is the result of the fall. Why Eve? Because of what you did, your desire will be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. That desire was not a loving desire. It wasn't a desire that says, oh, I just love my husband. That desire was like, man, you are not the boss of me. I'm the boss of you. You do what I say do. And our culture perpetuates that. They do. And it's, and it's, it's crazy. So propaganda said, when it comes to sexual orientation, why have I organized my identity by what arouses me? It's crazy, man. No, that's, we're not organizing our identity by what arouses us. The fact that we're aroused shows an inner heart issue. The fact that we are aroused for things that are unnatural shows a heart issue and needs to be repented of, needs to be laid at the altar of the Lord and given to him consistently, constantly, until it be taken away. That means it may, ne it may never leave, but you're continually going to the altar. You're going to the altar and giving it to the Lord, and I believe that God will free I believe God will take it away. He will. I believe that. Oh, man. So I, I put in my last note here, can Christians be feminists? And I think I already answered that. The feminism is, is, is evil. It's evil. It goes against what God's standard is, and that's just man's way and, or women's way of wanting to go away or deviate from what God says in his word. Uh, they, don't believe, they don't believe the Bible and what it says especially those who claim to be Christian and they're feminists. They don't believe what the Bible teaches concerning male headship. They believe that it was written based off of uh, misogyny and all that kind of stuff like that. So they don't believe that all the scripture is God breathed at that point. Can't be. But anyway, 
that's all I have, guys. Kind of went over a little bit tonight. Um, I kind of knew that was going to happen. This is the first night that I've actually tried to do breaks in the midst of this. Um, you see the number on the screen. I think you do. Yep, you see the number on the screen. You're welcome to text your questions to that number, and I will respond to them on the next show if I have enough of them. Um, well, uh, if, if one, even there's one question, I will respond to it. Um, also, remember to um, partner with me on Patreon at the website. The um, description, uh, the, the link to the description is, um, is below. And um, until next time, remember, in a world full of errors, the only thing that the doctor prescribes is truth. Blessings.